The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Kind of trying to set the stage. Today's going to be a little bit of an atypical sermon. And so if this is your first Sunday here, um, what you're going to hear today may not be quite what is normally heard at the pulpit, but I, I just decided to approach the sermon today a little bit differently. Um, let me begin with a word about discipleship, and hopefully you'll see sort of the building blocks that I'm going to build to get us to what I want to say today ultimately about divorce and remarriage. Discipleship is a word that is thrown around a lot in churches, but I think it's also one that produces actually great confusion among most Christians. Uh, What does it mean to, quote, be discipled or to disciple someone? If someone were to actually ask you, would you disciple me, Uh, what would you actually have them do? Uh, Jesus provides, I think, a very clear definition of how he sees discipleship. And it's found in the, a very famous passage, the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20, it says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then here's the key here, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. And so when you look at how Jesus is framing it, to disciple the nations, in essence, is to teach them how to obey everything that he has commanded us to do as his followers. And historically, the Sermon on the Mount has been seen as one of the most important biblical texts to help us understand what exactly are these commands of Jesus that we're expected to obey. In other words, if the Bible offers anything that we could call as a curriculum for discipleship, I think you would have to include the Sermon on the Mount in that curriculum. The early church fathers at the very start of the church, recognized the importance of the Sermon on the Mount as one of the most important texts to teach Christians how to understand the kind of life that God wants of us, what it means to follow Jesus. You know, there's a a famous theologian and pastor named Diedrich Bonhoeffer who was alive during the time of World War II in the Third Reich in Germany. And he was one of the only German pastors who was willing to publicly resist Hitler, and what he was doing with the Nazis. And in his own testimony, he shares about the utterly life-transforming experience of studying the Sermon on the Mount. In a biography about him, his words are recorded, something happened, something that has changed and transformed my life to the present day. For the first time, I discovered the Bible. I had often preached But I had not yet become a Christian. I had never prayed or prayed only very little. Then the Bible, and in particular the Sermon on the Mount, freed me from all that. Since then, everything has changed. It was a great liberation. It became clear to me that the life of a servant of Jesus Christ must belong to the church. And step by step, it became plainer to me how far that must go. It's 
not surprising that his classic, The Cost of Discipleship, was a complete exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. As he saw that as the fundamental framework of understanding life of discipleship. And I've shared this in previous messages in the series, but that's the same impact that the Sermon on the Mount has had in my life because I came upon it during a time when I felt so lost in my faith. When I was questioning everything about what I thought I understood about the Christian life. Having served in various levels of leadership in the church and yet somehow in the midst of all of that feeling so disillusioned and lost and confused, trying to understand what Christianity at its root is really all about. And it totally helped me to reframe the Christian life. Not from all the traditions that I've been raised in in church, but hearing the words of Christ himself spoken directly to me in a very powerful way. It rescued me from a very toxic, unhealthy view of prayer. Reading the teaching of Jesus on prayer in this sermon, came to realize that prayer was foundationally an invitation of God into an intimate relationship with him. And that transformed my prayer life. You know, I think when we think about um, a curriculum for discipleship, there are these things that tend to rise to the top of our list, like attending church faithfully, joining a small group, tithing, sharing your faith, evangelizing, having quiet time, or daily devotions. I mean, these are the typical things we think are the stuff of discipleship, right? Um, But I would argue that probably a better starting point to understand things from God's perspective is to start with the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this is where I, I, I need to get into a little bit of the weeds here. The content of the sermon is what we would typically categorize as, quote, Christian ethics. Christian ethics. Okay? And instead of jumping right into this topic of divorce and remarriage, what I thought I would do is first unpack the broader issue of how we are to understand these ethical teachings of Jesus so that then when we understand the broad principles of ethics under the kingdom of God, we can then apply to everything in life And we will do that, particularly with the issue of divorce and remarriage in the latter half of the sermon. And it was kind of interesting. We had a leaders, community group leaders meeting just last week. And in that discussion, it was raised, you know, like in as much as, you know, I am preaching and teaching the Bible and stuff, are we as a church actually learning how to study the Bible for ourselves? And that comment really stuck in my heart. And I thought, like, often what these sermons amount to is me working really hard all week to prepare a dish for you. And then, like a chef, I produce the finished product, you know. But I thought maybe in my sermons there are times when I actually need to make it more about, like, a cooking show, you know. And showing you the processes that I will go through myself to come to some of the conclusions that I do. And I want to do a little bit of that today. And hopefully this will help you to even understand how to study the Bible for yourself a little better when you think of the ethical teachings of Jesus specifically. I've made this statement numerous times that the Bible is not a rule book. But I need to clarify 
what I mean by that. What I would say is this. The Bible isn't primarily a rule book, but it does offer us rules, or another way we could talk about it is commands, for the kind of life that God wants us to live in order to please him, okay? The kind of life he desires for us. It's just that it's important to understand how these rules fit in to the bigger message of the Bible. As we just saw with the Great Commission, according to Jesus' own definition of discipleship, it's, at its heart is about obeying commandments that are an inescapable part of discipleship. But here's the rub. The moment we start talking about following rules or obeying commands, it starts making us feel really uncomfortable, doesn't it? And that's because obeying commands sounds like works. And aren't works opposed to a gospel of grace? And so, out of our fear of nullifying grace, we feel very uneasy about telling someone, you need to do this in order to be a follower of Jesus. And so it's not surprising that discipleship becomes a casualty of this confusion and the struggle of understanding the relationship between works and grace. After all, how are you supposed to teach people to obey all that Jesus commanded us to do without ending up with a gospel of legalism and works? But as James explains, the same faith that saves us must produce good works in our life. James 2, 14 to 18. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, what James is saying is when understood properly, there is no conflict between grace and works. Dallas Willard in his great book, The Great Omission, uh, says it like this. One of the primary problems for contemporary evangelicals is that we have lost the concept of discipleship. Among evangelicals, generally, it is now assumed that you can be a Christian without being a disciple of Jesus, and many are, so it see, or so it seems. To be a disciple is to be an apprentice or student of Jesus in kingdom living. But today, evangelicals may even farm the making of disciples out to parachurch organizations and assume that the local church is not necessarily, necessarily in that business. In fact, we now are somewhat at a loss as to what discipleship is. That is partly related to some theological developments. The teaching of salvation by grace through faith has in many quarters brought people to a condition where they really don't know what they are supposed to do. Currently, we are not only saved by grace, we are paralyzed by it. There is deep confusion. We find it hard to see that grace is not opposed to effort, but is opposed to earning. 
Earning and effort are not the same thing. Earning is an attitude, and grace is definitely opposed to that. But it is not opposed to effort. When you see a person who has been caught on fire by grace, you are apt to see some of the most astonishing efforts you can imagine. Grace is a tremendous motivator and energizer when you understand and receive it rightly. I like the way that Willard puts it. We're not only saved by grace, we are paralyzed by it. In other words, we're so afraid to impose any of Jesus' ethical teachings in the form of anything that sounds like a command that we need to obey, lest we find ourselves being guilty of preaching of salvation by works. And so the question is, so what do we do with them if we don't want to package it as commands? We offer to people as optional suggestions, things you might consider trying if you feel up to it. As Willard clarifies, works become a problem when we try to earn our salvation through them. But that is very different than a person who makes great efforts to obey the teachings of Christ as a result of the saving work of Jesus in their life. That kind of works is expected of every disciple of Jesus. And so unless we have the proper understanding of this relationship between grace and works, we will never take discipleship seriously. Because at the heart of discipleship is teaching others how to obey the teachings of Christ. In their book, Kingdom Ethics, uh, David Gushy and Glenn Stassen um, unpack four levels of any system of a code of ethics, including Christ's own. And I want to share with that briefly. I told you we're going to get into the weeds <laughs> a little bit, but hopefully you understand why all of this framework is going to be so helpful to understanding his teaching on divorce and remarriage. The first level is what we can call rules or commands. Rules tell us directly what we should or shouldn't do. That's simple definition. A rule tells you what you should or should not do, plain and simple. And the Sermon on the Mount is actually filled with them. I'll give you a few examples. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do not swear an oath. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. These are rules. These are commands. Pretty hard to dodge that reality, that truth, Okay. Again, rules in and of themselves aren't bad. They only become bad when we misuse them. Think of rules as the kind of love that a parent shows to the child when you tell your child, look both ways before you cross the street. That's a rule. Or don't touch any pots that are on the stove. You could get burned, right? In that same way, God gives us rules for our good to help us to understand how to live a life that pleases him. And here's another very important thing about rules. They don't spell out what we ought to do in every possible situation. In that way, they're more exemplary than comprehensive. Okay? In other words, God expects us to discern the intention of these rules so that we can apply them appropriately to similar situations. This leads us then to a higher level 
than rules, which is principles. Principles. Principles are more general than rules, providing the basis for understanding what the rules are. Let me give you some examples that come from the Sermon on the Mount of these principles. Love your enemies. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do not worry about your life. These are broader principles for living. The principle, love your enemies, for example, helps us make sense of the rule, pray for those who persecute you. The question is, why should I pray for someone that means me harm? Well, the principle is, under that rule, love your enemy. Love your enemy, not just your friends. When we understand the principle behind the rule, we can then navigate wisely through the complexity of all of the different situations that we may face regarding that rule. What are some other ways that I can show love to my enemy besides praying for them? Jesus interestingly gives another rule under this broader rubric of love your enemy in Matthew 5, 42. He says, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Well, how do you obey that rule? What are the limits to obeying that command? I mean, what if someone demands your house? Based on obedience to that law, am I supposed to sell my house and give it to them? What if someone asks me to empty their bank account and give me all of my cash, give them all my cash? Do I just give it to them? In other words, what are some other principles that can help us figure out how to honor this rule? in a meaningful way. When we understand the principles beneath these rules, there may even be times when we must override the rules in order to honor the principle. And this is really important because Jesus himself will do this again and again. When we understand the principle beneath the rule, there may be times when in order to honor that broader principle, we have to actually abandon some rules or go against them. Let me give you an obvious example to show you how this works. Imagine a young girl is told by her parents, you must never, ever, ever touch any of the knives in this house, okay? Absolutely no. But one day, her mother left a knife on a low table, and she sees her baby brother crawling over and reaching to grab that knife. Instinctively, the girl grabs the knife before her brother can reach it and brings it to her mother. Now you see, the girl has broken the rule of never touching knives in the house. But she did it because she understood the principle behind the rule That it was her parents' desire to keep her and her siblings safe. This illustrates how important it is that we understand the principles behind the rules in order to properly apply them in our life. And this raises another important point, particularly with with this illustration. You could argue that that this girl went against her parents' command. When she grabbed the knife. Hey, let's be honest. Technically, this is true. She broke the command. But these are the difficult choices all of us have to make. 
living in the complexity of a broken and sinful world. Where sometimes we may have to decide among competing principles that seem at odds with each other. We've all heard of that moral dilemma, right? What if you were hiding Jews in World War II and the Nazis knocked on your door and asked you, are you hiding Jews? What would you say? Let's not be that hypothetical, something that you very well likely encounter. What do you say to your insecure and yet hopelessly untalented son who asked you what you thought of his music recital after it was over? When you have to choose between showing kindness and mercy versus telling the truth, I hope you would make the right choice in that situation. It's the messiness of a sinful and fallen world in which we need wisdom to figure out what is the right thing to do in this situation. But there is a level that is deeper than even principles, and that is what is called basic convictions. Basic convictions. Principles are drawn from basic convictions, which are our most foundational beliefs about reality. You can't go any deeper than this. Uh, Gushi and Stassen say this. For Christians, these are our most basic convictions about the character, activity, and will of God and about our nature as participants in that will. These convictions are the ultimate ground of Christian ethics. In other words, what they're saying is the deepest deepest level of Christian morality is rooted in the understanding of who God is and what his will is for his creation and in your life particularly. And when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually points to these basic convictions over and over again. Here's just a few of them. God is merciful and loving. God knows everything we need. We are made to give glory to God. There is a judgment coming. He taps into these basic convictions over and over again. And here's the point. You cannot reason yourself to these basic convictions. These are such foundational truths. God must reveal them to us through his word. It's the only way that we understand them. Right before he gives the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records these words in Matthew 4, 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. The reason why I pointed to that verse is because one of the most important basic convictions that grounds the entire Sermon on the Mount is the reality that God's kingdom has broken into our world. It is on the basis of that foundational truth that Jesus teaches everything, saying, the kingdom of God is here. Now live in the reality of that kingdom and let the impact of those kingdom values affect every aspect of your life when you're trying to reconcile with someone that you have a strained relationship with, when you think about a marriage that is failing, when you think about your view of money and material possessions and all of these things, the kingdom of God is broken through. And so live in the reality of that kingdom presently. That's why I've titled this entire series, Life in the Kingdom. It's the encapsulation of what Jesus is saying through this teaching. And so if we put it all together, this is what's happening. 
Jesus gives rules to his disciples for their good, teaching them to obey them whenever possible. And as I said, this is not about earning your righteousness. It's not about doing enough good work so that God will love you more. That is not the gospel. His love for you is unconditional. Nevertheless, he gives these rules to teach us the life of discipleship. Sometimes these principles and basic convictions will even, uh, well, well, rules have to be constantly adapted to new and different situations based on the underlying principles and basic convictions that gave rise to them. In other words, there is a role for wisdom here of understanding why it is that God has asked us to do the things that he has asked us to do that can cause us to figure out how to apply these things into rules. And then sometimes these principles and basic convictions will even lead us to adjust or even overturn those very rules when we understand what the actual principle is underneath. Gushy and Stassen say this, the rules that Jesus taught are needed, binding, and to be obeyed. Exceptions are considered as a last, not first, resort. An exception is legitimate only if it is grounded in a principle or another rule that Jesus taught or that is found in Scripture. And all actions and moral judgments must pass the basic conviction test related to the character and will of God as revealed supremely in Jesus Christ. So one basic one is the truth that God is love. And whatever ethic we adopt, it must affirm that most foundational truth. God is holy. God is love. God is just. These things are vital. This then <clears throat> brings us to the problem of legalism. Legalism. Like discipleship, legalism is one of these terms that gets thrown around a lot in the church. But most often when we use it, it lacks a precision and a clarity that is needed to really understand what the meaning of legalism is. And so let me define for you legalism in this framework. Legalism deals with morality solely at the level of rules, totally detaching them from the principles or basic convictions that gave rise to them. Legalism is an exclusively rules-based morality. <clears throat> it's all about the rules, following the rules, obeying the rules, keeping them, and breaking the rules. <clears throat> In a legalistic framework of morality, all that matters is obeying rules. <clears throat> and in fact, many of the confrontations that Jesus had with the religious leaders was precisely over this issue that they used a moralistic, legalistic framework of ethic. Mark chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. <clears throat> Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. You see what's going on here? In their legalistic mindset, all they cared about was, let's keep an eye on this guy. Because we've heard that he's done this in the past. Is he going to keep the Sabbath rule 
of doing no work? Or is he going to heal this guy? <clears throat> this is legalism in full display. Continues in verse 4. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. You see, Jesus, what he is doing right here is he is drawing their attention to the deeper principle of the Sabbath, not the rule. This was, in other words, what Jesus is saying. When I heal on the Sabbath, it is totally consistent with my Father's heart of mercy and compassion. And it, in fact, helps you to understand the deeper meaning of Sabbath rest. Because in Jesus' argument, he's saying, what greater rest could God give his people than to heal them of their suffering on the Sabbath? It is the fulfillment of the Sabbath in that sense. But it goes on in verse 5. He looked around them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. You see, the Pharisees were utterly clueless to the deeper principle of Sabbath rest and the heart of God in wanting to give his people rest. In their legalism, all that mattered was whether someone kept the Sabbath rules like they thought they were doing. It's like a policeman witnessing someone heroically saving a child in the street from being hit by an oncoming car and then issuing him a ticket for jaywalking. Saying, you are so blind. You are so nitpicking about these rules. But you have missed the heart of God in obeying those rules. What it is that God desires for his people. On another occasion, when Jesus healed a woman on, the, on a Sabbath, this was the Pharisees' reaction, captured in Luke's gospel, chapter 13, 14 to 15. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days. Not on the Sabbath. This is the wrong day for healing. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox and donkey from the stall and lead it out and give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? What Jesus is drawing attention to is that often with legalism is hypocrisy. When we focus only on the rules, not only do we use those rules, in other words, to judge others, but we often learn how to bend those rules in our favor, finding loopholes so that we don't have to live by the same standard. And what Jesus was saying to these leaders is, you have figured out a clever way to get out of, quote, work by this loophole that you can do good to your animals, because after all, they need to drink water, otherwise they'll die. And yet, why can't you apply that same principle to me healing this woman who has been suffering for 18 years? That's the blindness and hypocrisy of legalism, where the only thing that matters is the rules as I define them. Well, 
let's take all of this and let's now apply it to the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. When we apply the legalistic framework to the issue of divorce and remarriage, what we basically end up with is this simple question. What are the rules for divorce and remarriage? And are there any exceptions? That's the legalistic mindset. What are the rules for marriage, divorce, and remarriage? And are there any loopholes around those rules? Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 to 32, it's this very legalistic mindset that I think Jesus is addressing in these verses. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You see, in Jesus' day, the religious leaders had found a loophole for getting out of an unwanted marriage. And they, that loophole was the certificate of divorce, as taught by Moses in the Old Testament law. One of the things we have to understand from a historical perspective is that divorce was particularly devastating to women in Jewish society. Because often after a divorce, a woman had no means to care for herself. So she was totally at the mercy of others to help her. And unfortunately, it wasn't uncommon for these women after divorce to wind up in prostitution as the only way of survival. That's why this certificate of divorce was so important. And it was given to the woman. And so what was originally intended in the law of Moses as a protective measure for women, these Jewish men took and turned it completely around to their advantage. Because in that passage in Deuteronomy 24, what Moses talks about is if a woman is guilty of, quote, indecency, which properly translated means she has been guilty of a very major moral lapse, like adultery then a husband may divorce, but he must give her a certificate of divorce for her protection. And by the time of Jesus, they had taken that word indecency and twisted it to basically mean anything that they didn't like about their wife. And if you actually read the rabbinical writings, the list is outrageous. Because what some of the rabbis said is that indecency could be if your wife burns your dinner. And it goes... To the extent of saying, if you frankly just have lost desire for her, you could categorize that under indecency. And that gives you the right to divorce her. In other words, the bottom line was for these men, you could divorce your wife for pretty much any reason under the sun. And that's why in chapter 19 of Matthew's gospel, there's this dealing with the Pharisees about this issue of divorce, and that's what they say. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? The reason why they say it like that is because this was the prevailing teaching of the rabbis among some rabbis at that time. What do you say to that, Jesus? Do you allow for this? Divorce under pretty much any circumstance that a man wants. 
And here is Jesus' response. He counters by saying this loophole isn't legitimate because you have violated the deeper principle that is taught in the Old Testament law and the Old Testament generally about marriage and divorce. They made it, in other words, far too easy to abandon an unwanted marriage thinking that as long as they gave their wife the certificate of divorce, and oh, they followed the rule, then they were doing the right thing according to the law. But here is what Jesus says. In his perspective, these are not legitimate grounds for dissolving a marriage. And that's why to remarry under that circumstance that they were using, he argues, is tantamount to committing adultery with a new spouse. It's not captured here in Matthew 5, but if you go to Matthew 19, Jesus here clearly goes beyond the rules to explain the principles that are involved here for his basic conviction about divorce and remarriage. Matthew 19, verse 4 to 6. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, of the, at the, beginning the creator made them male and female? And said, for the, this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. You see, from a purely human standpoint, it actually makes perfect sense to seek a divorce when someone is unhappy in a marriage. Because what is the greatest good that you're after, after all? Isn't it your happiness? But according to Jesus, his argument is that we must do everything we can to preserve even the most difficult marriages. Because in God's eyes, the two people, when they marry, actually become one flesh in a spiritual sense. And you may ask, well, what's the big deal about that? And what I would say is, because in the broader teaching of Scripture, by God's design, one of the purposes of marriage is to teach us about His love for us through the love that we experience between husband and wife. You know, in Ephesians 5, when Paul is going on and on about all these rules about how husbands and wives are supposed to treat each other, he suddenly interrupts all of that with this really strange thing to say in Ephesians 5, 31 to 32. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. In other words, why is it so vital to fight for our marriages? Because in God's eyes, he's saying that marriage is intended for you as a living, ongoing illustration of my love for you. And so as goes your marriage, very likely so will go your shaping and understanding of even the gospel message. Because through that marriage, God wants to teach you about unwavering commitment and about unconditional love, about statements like Hebrews 13, 5, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. 
Isaiah 49, 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. And let me say this. There's actually a lot more than I want to say on this, but you guys are probably already getting used to it. I'm going to preach a part two on this message the next time I preach because I just don't have the time to unpack the importance of that. We can't understand why God is so strongly against divorce unless we understand what he has intended for marriage. And so I will share that in the next sermon. But let me also say this. I think Jesus also recognizes the reality of a broken world and that there are times when a marriage covenant has been so deeply violated that divorce may be the most loving option to consider. And so that's why I think he offers this case of adultery and allows for it, although he doesn't interestingly require it. Again, if we become legalists about this, then we're just saying, well, what are the exceptions? But I think Jesus is trying to point us to something greater, and it is God fights jealously for your marriage, and he hates divorce, and he wants them to stay together, but there is also a compassionate reality for allowing for that brokenness, still as an act of love. And I think that's exactly why Paul could say what he said in 1 Corinthians 7.15, but if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. You see, these are not Jesus' words. So in a way, you could argue, hey, Paul, you don't get to say that. Where do you get to decide that uh, this is another exemption or loophole? But again, it's only we think this way, only if we think about all this legalistically. If we think about what it means to preserve the broad principles and the heart of God in this issue of marriage, it is let's fight tooth and nail for every marriage to be preserved. But let's also recognize that sometimes we have to know when it's just not going to happen. And here Paul gives another situation like that. I personally don't think that this means these are the only two cases like has been taught in the church so often. I think that again is a legalistic framework. Let me give you another example where we have to carefully weigh that issue is when there's an abusive spouse. And sometimes I think sadly under this understanding that there are only two exceptions for divorce, pastors and others in the church have sent women back into very abusive homes, sometimes leading to their death, saying this is the covenant you have to argue, you have to defend for. Scott McKnight says it this way, if covenant love is commitment to be with someone and for someone, as someone who is working unto divine ends, then marriages are destroyed when one partner refuses to quote, be, quote, with the spouse, or who becomes someone who is against that spouse. When a man obviously fails to be the husband that covenant love demands, or when a wife obviously fails to be the wife that covenant love demands, grounds for divorce may be present because the covenant is being destroyed. I think that's the deeper principle that should guide how we help others in their struggling marriages. What is the best thing to do in this situation? And rather than trying to look to the rules that the Bible lays out, we have to understand what the principles are 
that are at play here. It's interesting, even in that exception that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 7, we think, oh, he's giving people an out. But actually, even if you read 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12 to 13, look at what he says to that person that may be living with that unbelieving spouse. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. This was a real struggle in the early church. They were saying, listen, if I become saved and my husband refuses to become a believer, then he's saying, don't we have nothing in common anymore? And wouldn't it make more sense for us to just go our separate ways? But there's something so, there's something about the sanctity of that marriage covenant that Paul says, listen, even if your spouse is not a believer, don't just automatically think you ought to go your separate ways. Again, Paul understands the foundational principle. Marriage is sacred in God's eyes because two become one flesh. And so it should only be in the most extraordinary circumstances that we concede that divorce may be the best option there. I do want to say, though, that I think there's a disturbing way that we can treat people of divorce in the church. As though somehow they bear the stain. And it's unfortunate that as Christians we so often rank sins or rank failures and brokenness. And sadly divorce becomes one of those things. Where sometimes divorced people are made to feel like second class citizens. And if we really believe in a gospel of grace, that cannot happen in the people of God. When somebody divorces and their marriage is over, I think we as Christians must do everything we can to rally around them and show them that they are just as loved, just as accepted, just as welcome into the community of God's people as anyone else. Amen? That has to be the firm commitment if we understand the heart of God underneath these rules, underneath these principles. <clears throat> Let me just close by saying this, and then I'm going to wrap up here. I know I went kind of long today, and I knew I was going long. I normally have seven to eight pages of notes, and I have 12 today. So I actually got through it faster than I thought. Gushy and Stas, and I'll just close with this quote. At the heart of a troubled marriage, in most cases, are relational brokenness and alienation. Sometimes alienation results from one major act that damages the marriage such as an impetuous affair. Normally, though, marital alienation results from a slow clogging of the marital arteries through a buildup of resentment due to unresolved conflicts, so-called irreconcilable differences. And marital breakdown to which most divorces are attributed do not happen overnight. The miracle of forgiveness is its ability to unclog the arteries of human relationships and remove the built-up resentments, and thus enable peaceable interaction once again in a reconciled relationship. Reconciliation is the ultimate transformative initiative in all relationships, including our most intimate ones. I think you could hear this message today, and this may affirm your worst thoughts about God. I, I knew it. I knew that he was this killjoy that just wanted my unhappiness. And we can cast it in such a way to basically see it like this. 
Well, I guess I'm forced into two choices. Either I become divorced and walk away from my unhappiness and become a pariah to God and to the church. Or I guess I'm stuck in this unhappy marriage because God wants to punish me because he hates me. I don't think that is God's heart for you. And let me say this. I think some of you really struggle with this because you aren't divorced, maybe, some of you, but you realize that for all intents and purposes, you are just cohabiting with your spouse. And maybe over the journey of your marriage, you realize so much has been lost. And when you start feeling this way about your marriage, this can feel like such a sledgehammer of guilt and shame. I think Jesus isn't saying, if you're going to be my disciple, you better not divorce. Just learn to buck up and stiff up her chin and like grind through it. Because truth is, we're all unhappy. Why should you be happy? You know? None of us get to be happy. I don't think that's the heart of God. The heart of God is somehow in that act of honoring that covenant and staying together and fighting through the conflicts and the alienation and the hurts we inflict on each other. There is this possibility by the grace of God of discovering something so incredibly powerful about God's love for you through your love for one another. Let's pray. In a minute, we're going to come to the Lord's table, but let me just give you a few moments to come before God in prayer. I want to first say this is, I think for a lot of us, we have been raised in some church traditions that have been very legalistic. Some of you grew up in churches where you were never allowed to eat at restaurants or go shopping on Sundays because that's the rule. Don't break the Sabbath rule. And man, you know, um, that was weighed very heavy on you, you know. Um, I don't know. What are the, all the expressions of legalism that you've experienced in your life? And that is not the gospel. The gospel is of a loving God who loved you so much that he gave his son to die for you. And he not only paid for the penalty of your sin, but in his love for you, he wants to restore you and heal you and make you whole. Part of that invitation is to come under the leadership of Christ, to surrender your wisdom for his wisdom, your strength for his power embrace the road that he lays before you and maybe there's something in you that feels like this is so illogical it just doesn't make any sense and maybe if some of you feel like you're on the edge with your marriage and you think I don't know if I could take another day of this I'm so sick of this I want to be happy and in that spirit maybe a teaching like this just feels abusive to you why should I do this for God Maybe what God is saying, it's, it's for you. Because by design, I have intended this to be something beautiful for you. And maybe this is for you to say, in my own strength, I realize I cannot make this happen. And maybe 
this teaching of Christ might even be an invitation to you to just totally come to the cross surrendered and say, God, I need you. I need you. I don't want this to be what my marriage looks like. There's got to be something more. Maybe that's something that you can lift up to the Lord. Maybe you've already experienced divorce in your life. You've been broken by that. There's no brokenness beyond God's reach to make you whole and restore you in His infinite love for you. In all of this, God's heart for us is that we might understand His redeeming, healing love, His unwavering faithfulness and commitment to us. Would you just pray for a couple minutes if maybe in your own heart you realize that you're so stuck on rules, making sure that people follow the right rules, and that has put you in bondage. Maybe what you need is the touch of God to set you free from all that and see beyond the rules to see the heart of God that doesn't stare down at you with his arms folded, angry, but is looking at you with eyes of love, of acceptance, unconditional compassion and mercy. We just pray for a couple minutes and then in just a moment, I'm going to lead us into the Lord's table. Let's pray before God. so he transformed radically the meaning of that Passover meal when he said that this bread represents my body broken for you the cup of wine represents my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins so he commanded his disciples whenever you reenact this ritual do it in remembrance of what I am about to do for you on the cross and so as we think about our need for Christ. Let's come to the table and receive this bread and receive this cup as an expression of God's grace and mercy toward us. Let's go ahead and first take from the bread and secondly take from the cup and then our worship team will lead us in a time of response.